And I think a lot of immigrant children, we do that. We like sacrifice our own emotional needs in order to maintain family harmony. Mm -hmm. And that actually does us a great disservice because it doesn't shift the caregiving dynamic from parent to child. And it reverses it and it feels like it's going from child to parent. Mm -hmm. And what's so bad about that for us as immigrant kids is that it trains us to not consider our own emotional needs as important or relevant or um, in need of like tending to. And so we often will find ourselves in romantic relationships where we are, you know, meeting a very similar dynamic where we are partnering ourselves with people who cannot meet our emotional needs because they can't even empathize with us in the ways that we need empathy. Hey, everyone. Welcome to Season 1, Episode 7 of Migrations. Today's episode gets really deep into politics, body image, heteronormativity, and more. It was an honor speaking to Sonali Rashathwar, who I'll introduce in just a minute. But first, I need to ask for your help. I know that so much is going on right now. The world is turned upside down, and we are just trying to navigate. So I totally understand if you're having tough times. I feel like this is a time where people on the margins need support more than ever, which is exactly why I have centered Asian voices within this podcast. Not only do I interview Asians from so many ancestries, but the art, music, and editing behind this podcast all come from Asian backgrounds. This is how serious I was about centering Asian voices, because I felt like this is critical to recentering Asian narratives. Coordinating guests, pre-interviewing them, scheduling the recording, which usually happens in my closet where I'm sitting right now, listening and re-listening to the episodes, writing scripts, and adding an audio take hours each week. So if you are able, please head over to my Patreon page at www.patreon.com migrations to contribute whatever you can. I offer a sneak peek into episodes for as little as $5 a month, and I send you a book if you contribute $20 a month. Of course, if you want to make a one-time contribution, that's totally fine. This page is also linked in the show notes. Last but not least, if you like the show, please, pretty please rate it. This helps me a lot. And if you want, feel free to write a review. As always, thank you so much for your support. Hi, everyone. I want to welcome Sonali Rashathwar, aka the Fat Sex Therapist on Instagram. <laughs> Sonali uses she, they pronouns. They're an award-winning clinical social worker, sex therapist, adjunct lecturer, and grassroots organizer based in Philadelphia. They're also a super fat, queer, bisexual, non-binary therapist specializing in treating sexual trauma, body image issues, racial or immigrant identity issues in South Asian family systems while offering fat and body positive sexual health care. Sonali identifies as an Indian mixed caste recovering Hindu, and they've been working in the field of anti-violence for over eight years. You can find them on Instagram at the fat sex therapist and online at www.sonalir.com. And just for reference, we're recording this episode on March 22nd. And I just wanted to clarify that, giving the changing landscape in our world these days, um, how it's changing at any moment. So, hey, Sonali, thanks for being here. Thank you so much, Nisha, for having me. It is really a pleasure to be on your podcast. Wonderful. Um, so how are you doing with everything going on these days? I have to admit, I am really anxious right now. I'm on the East Coast and... I'm based in Philly, like you mentioned, and we just got the order for shelter in place wow. starting tomorrow. And it's basically how a lot of us have been operating over the last like nine days, mm -hmm. but it's just spiked my anxiety a little bit. So I'm like talking to you with like this even toned voice and inside my heart is racing. Oh, <laughs> Well, I'm giving you a social distancing hug. Um, Thank you. I do understand Thursday night is when California got the order, basically. I, I don't know if it was exactly, it was called safer at home, not technically mm. shelter in place. And I still haven't quite figured out the difference. And I agree. I mean, I felt like myself and a lot of people I know were operating that way, but there's something about that 
order that really spiked my anxiety that night. So I completely, I probably should have just like not have worked from home on Friday, but I was just trying to go through the motions. But yeah, it could be very anxiety inducing, um, understanding that this needs to happen, you know? Um, I don't know. There's something about like the state telling us to do it that really freaks me out. Yes. I think that was too, for sure. Um, I read this post that really like freaked me out about how the state actually is like relinquishing a lot of control or or actually like putting it on our shoulders as individuals. And it was this tweet from a person named Montreal girl mm-hmm. where she basically said quarantine without testing is a project of social control mm-hmm. that transfers responsibility for sickness from states to individuals. That's really intense. Right? Yeah. Wow. I'm sorry. Yeah. Now we're like really <laughs> Oh no, that's super intense. Like I'm trying to like peel back the layers of that because it's yeah. it's like the states telling us to do things for our public health, which I do think that it is their responsibility to have like for there to be some sort of like voice for certain areas, right? Sure, um, guidelines, sure. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, who is responsible for our health? You know, why mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. shouldn't they also be responsible to a degree for that? But it's hard when so many things are privatized and there's so much bureaucracy. Yeah. When healthcare is for profit. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, that's mm-hmm. what I think is the most disturbing thing about all of this is that, um, you know, one reason we're trying to flatten the curve is to truly not overwhelm the healthcare system. Because besides this crisis, people are still sick. Things still mm-hmm. happen to people that have nothing to do with COVID-19. Mm-hmm. Yet there isn't a fast turnaround. The testing is seems like such a mess that we can't just get mm-hmm. testing where other countries are somehow able to mobilize. It's very confusing too. And I think there's a lot of inner workings that the everyday public just doesn't know, including myself. Like, how mm-hmm. does this, why, how can we just get this to work? <laughs> you know what I mean? It's a scary time. It is a scary time. Um, so I'm going to actually transition to a question that has nothing to do with this. And might um, bring a little levity. And I wanted to talk to you about melons because (laughs) we had a brief conversation on Instagram about melons. And I'm just going to ask you, even though I know this answer, about whether you prefer (laughs) cantaloupe or honeydew melons. (laughs) This is so great. Thank you. This question is so much better. Why did we start talking about the apocalypse? (laughs) I know. I know. Maybe I should have started this way. My bad. Um, I am a diehard cantaloupe fan and believe it or not, I have a cantaloupe sitting right on my kitchen table as we speak. Oh my God. That is so amazing. (laughs) It just warms my heart to know that, you know, at least, at least you got cantaloupes at the market, you know? You know, I did my grocery shopping yesterday, me and my, my girlfriend, we were at the grocery store and I feel like I went grocery shopping for a month. So I brought home tons of things. And one of the apocalypse fruits that I wanted was a cantaloupe. So let the record show. <laughs> I love cantaloupe so much. <laughs> oh my god. I would god. like it to be one of my last fruits. <laughs> I know. It is one of my favorite fruits too. Like I remember growing up and my parents always like cut fruit with dinner. It was always something that I really, really enjoyed just because I love fruit so much. And we would always have mm. cantaloupe and I liked it so much, but I always felt growing up in various places in this country, it was always honeydew that people liked more. And I never understood it. It just felt so mediocre to me. <laughs> I'm just like, this is I not love, as sweet now, juicy as cantaloupe. I love both, both of them, I must say. But it was the same in my family too. They seemed to like honeydew more than cantaloupe, but we would never have one without the other, which is also very strange. So to oh, me, they, they feel like a couplet. Yeah, I feel like oh. it's peanut butter and jelly. It's honeydew and cantaloupe. <laughs> That's really interesting. Isn't well, I that guess, funny? Yeah, it is interesting. So whenever I would go to places, I usually feel like I do see both on a fruit tray. I notice that people take the honeydew more. And that's always, I think, what has internally hurt me a little bit. Because I'm like, wow. I mean, I'm glad more, wow. more cantaloupe for me. But at the same time, I'm like, how can True. y'all not like cantaloupe? Like it's sweeter. It's so much more rich. But, you know, that's just me. 
but it Andy, looks so visually funny. engaging. It has a color. Yes. I'm into it. I'm very into it. <laughs> same, same. Cantaloupe identity politics. Yes. I think this should be examined a little more. Someone needs to write <laughs> some type of dissertation about this. <laughs> it should be the title of this episode. <laughs> you know what? All right. I'm doing it. That's fine with me. Um, I mean, nothing wrong with melons as a topic. Nope. Nope. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, you know, I just realized that it is like kind of like a coral deep peach is one of my favorite colors. So maybe that's mm, part of it too. It's mm. got to be. Yeah. I think it's also probably a fruit that lasts a while, right? Like, yeah, it does. You can cut it up until it's like molding on the outside. Yeah. And yeah. you can still and- get a pretty delicious fruit in the middle. Yes, definitely. Yeah. Even if it's a little like too ripe, like the, yeah. the slight fermentation is quite enjoyable. Oh, I totally agree. That's an unpopular opinion, but I totally agree. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> We're going to make some cantaloupe wine. <laughs> <laughs> I would drink that. No joke. Yeah, um, same, same. So whenever I come to Philly, we will cheers to some cantaloupe wine. How about that? You know what? I'll get it started. <laughs> awesome. Yeah, let's By the time look. quarantine's over, it'll be ready. Yes, that's true. That's true. Probably will be. Um, oh, good. I'm glad we could, you know, joke about that. So. Oh, God. Yeah. After our scintillating melon chat, I asked Sonali about their background as a social worker, sex therapist, and organizer. So I am born and raised Jersey girl. And I say girl with that emphasis because I'm non-binary. And so as a non-binary person, I'm not necessarily a woman necessarily, but I do still like calling myself a girl. So I'm ride or die for the East Coast. I'm from the area. I've always been from here. My family lives in Jersey. I live in Philadelphia. It's a short drive away. Mm -hmm. And my journey to social work was completely accidental. I was not one of those people who knew at age 10 that they wanted to be a sex therapist. Mm -hmm. I was always a very sexual person. And a lot of the slut shaming that I experienced in my family would, you know, set me apart and really signaled me as some kind of layman's sex expert within like my siblings and cousins and friends. Mm. But my transition to social work started in my mid twenties when a friend of mine was going to the grad school that, that we both went to uh, just outside Philadelphia. And she told me a little bit about social work and that social work is basically anything. You could do anything in the whole world with a master's in social work degree, which really feels exciting to me because I feel like I need to have my hands in like 10 different pots at the same time. Mm -hmm. And I need to have like, you know, three different side hustles and projects going. I'm a Gemini like that. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know if it's a Gemini thing. Maybe it's a Capricorn thing. Who cares? Yeah, who cares? It works. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it's me. (laughs) And my friend basically told me that it was a way to be like a professional activist and not in the gross, like snowflake, you know, anti-liberal way, Mm -hmm. but in the way, in the sense that you could make a career infusing your work with your politics and you could not have to live a life where they become segmented and dichotomized where you can only like live your politics in the evening. And I really liked the sound of that. And I was already someone who was interested in exploring my own sexual orientation. I had fallen in love with a woman in my early twenties for the first time and had really lived in this like, sad swamp of like internalized biphobia Mm -hmm. you know really like neglecting myself the opportunity to to love someone of a similar gender and there was something really interesting about the program that I thought you know I would meet other people who are also talking about taboo subjects and not afraid to go there and not afraid to talk about the intersections of uh, gender and class and race and colonialism Mm-hmm. And what was really depressing <laughs> about grad school is that, you know, I get there hoping that there I'll be surrounded by, you know, other leftists and radicals like me. And to be honest, I was like maybe a baby leftist back then. Like I was still kind of a liberal in a lot of really big ways. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but grad school really radicalized me and um, forced me to be disillusioned by the understanding that like liberals don't actually have our best interests in mind either, just like conservatives, because grad school was a traumatizing time of learning about really what mainstream social work is and how it operates, which is like to uphold the status quo and to kind of operate within the nonprofit industrial complex. Mm-hmm. And thankfully I had like a couple of rabble rouser classmates who were like-minded and political. And we, we bucked a lot of the systems in grad school and it was fantastic. And it was also extremely white. And what grad school did for me was push me to find politicized South Asians where I was living. Mm-hmm because those are communities that I've always felt safe in, you know, safety to some degree, um, because I've, I've still always was a kid who would talk about the sex that I was having with my Indian friends and not always get good reactions or talk about the drugs and that I wanted to be doing and not having good reactions or (laughs) talk about rules I was breaking and speeding and didn't have good reactions. So safety to some extent. And Finding that community really helped in grad school. I think it pushed me to really deepen my politics and idea of being an other when actually there are actually so many fucking rad leftist South Asian organizers doing super important work in the world. And I feel grateful to have found them. That's awesome. Yeah, it's interesting um, how you talked about social work being something that you initially, you know, your friend told you, you could basically do whatever you want. And I never even thought about it that way. And while you found this very kind of liberal whiteness, you know, while you were in grad school, thankfully, you were still able to find a sense of community in others. So in a way, you still have been able to shape what you do around this idea of social work and um, sex therapy and whatnot, it seems. Absolutely, yes. When I was being radicalized by not seeing myself reflected in the curriculum, by seeing, you know, Easternness and otherness, you know, pathologized in my curriculum, having us being seen as backwards or savages. It really pushed me to find people who look like me and think like me so that I didn't feel fucking othered. Yeah, the people I found were through Facebook groups. And my best friend to this day, his name is Tarek, he and I, we met maybe like seven years ago through a Facebook group called Desi Punks. Mm -hmm. And it is a group that doesn't exist anymore, at least in the form that it did then. And it was basically like a Facebook group for like South Asian outcasts. And I read so much about what living on the margins of South Asian identity looks like. It looks like, you know, having families that struggle with like divorce or addiction or incarceration or deportation or, just so many additional experiences that felt like mine and then didn't feel like mine and really deepened my understanding. And it was in meeting people like that, that I was interested in meeting um, more leftists. And Tharik and I found all kinds of people in Philadelphia who were doing uh, organizing work through media, through visual arts, through video, through photography, through canvassing, through the academy, through teaching and being a professor, through organizing in restaurant workers or offering employment legal aid. The kinds of South Asian leftists that are working in Philly right now who I am connected to are people I hope to know for the rest of my life. And thank goodness I was pushed to find them. Otherwise, I would have no community. Yeah. And the community care, I think especially these days with everything that's happening, I'm realizing even more and more how important that community care is. We would have nothing without that mutual aid. And it feels so good to know that if something were to happen, I've got people who will come and check on me because, you know, I said, I live close to my family. My family is only in Jersey. That's like a 35 minute drive from where I am right now in Philadelphia. Mm -hmm. And even in moments of crisis, some of my friends have gone home to their families who also live close by in Jersey. And I don't feel like that would be good for me. I wish that it would feel good to live in the same house as my parents again, but it would not. The type of food policing and 
non-consensual dieting that I experienced in my parents' house will probably never cease to exist. And I feel like it can't be a refuge for me. And so I have to just figure out how to make it work living on my own in Philly. And not in like a martyr kind of way, like this is a decision I'm making for myself. (laughs) I was particularly struck when Sonali talked about being a South Asian on the margins. So often we hear about this model minority myth. Being on the margins of a group that's already on the margins challenges the idea of the model minority. Yet at the same time, Sonali and I both enjoy a certain degree of privilege that fits within the model minority myth. My father had two master's degrees. My mom has her bachelor's degree. I have two master's degrees. My brother has a master's. While my parents struggled when they first came to the country, we mostly enjoyed a middle-class life. Yet in high school, I didn't feel like I quite fit in with the other South Asians. I always felt a little different. But this idea of the model minority poses a certain expectation that, one, we all come from the same backgrounds, two, we are all supposed to be in certain professions that mobilize us up a social ladder, aka the American dream, and three, it's what we are supposed to want. This erases populations of people that have expended labor in so many ways. Here, Sonali connects the model minority myth with the concept of Hindutva, which is essentially Hindu nationalism in India, which, since Prime Minister Narendra Modi's election in 2014, has only grown in popularity and subsequently destroyed lower castes and non-Hindus, especially Muslims in India. I link to a great article titled Unmasking Modi in the show notes, if you'd like to learn more. To give context to what Sonali will soon talk about, I'm going to give a little background about Hindu castes. It is believed that your actions, a.k.a. karma, in your current life will affect which caste you were born into your next life. When I was young, I learned that there were four castes. The highest caste were Brahmins. These were the teachers and religious leaders. The second was Kshatriyas, the warrior caste. Third were the Vaishya, who are the merchants and farmers. This is the caste both my parents are from. And fourth is Shudras, the servants. Bahujans, Adivasis, and Dalits are below these four castes, though it can also mean being part of the Shudra caste. You might have heard the term untouchables, which also refers to being below the lowest castes. Yeah, you're definitely right. And I also want to make sure that I'm not distancing myself from my own privilege. So like in a lot of ways, yes, my family fits the model minority myth. My dad has a PhD. My mom has her college degree. My parents are middle, upper middle class. They live in a McMansion in New Jersey. They, uh, I have a master's degree. My sister has her law degree. My brother has his bachelor's. Um, you know, we are not struggling and we're Indian. So like part of the Indocentric narrative of South Asia, like really erases everyone else outside of India. So mm-hmm. my family is Hindu. I'm no longer a practicing Hindu, but my family still is, especially my mom. Um, my mom's upper caste, my dad is lower caste, and my mom in the last, like, I would say, you know, about 10 years, her, like, Hinduism has really become, like, fundamentalized in ways that, you know, she doesn't see, but I hear it as, like, dog whistle Hindutva, mm-hmm. and and all of that does fit into the model minority myth, so, and so I don't want to erase how much... <laughs> actually my family is contributing to the problem. I wanted to dive a little bit more into you talking about just being mixed caste and you said your dad Mm -hmm. was lower caste and your mom is upper caste and it seems like that along with other um, like just being a child of immigrants but within this model minority myth has really informed the work you do and radicalized you in lots of ways. Can you Talk a little bit more about like the idea of caste, especially for listeners that may not be as clear about that and how what's problematic about it, especially in this day and age. Yeah, totally. So I don't know if mixed caste is a real term. I'm using it because I feel like calling myself lower caste kind of erases the complexity of the way that I experience caste because my mom is upper caste mm-hmm. and a lot of her family already lives here in the U.S. because of her caste background. So my parents have really starkly different migration stories because of their caste backgrounds. So my mom, because her family was is upper caste, came to the U.S. in like the 70s, in like the early 70s. And they lived here since. And 
they didn't live in one place, so they still were uh, super duper poor and were living off of my grandfather's, uh, he was like a professor, like a math professor, he's a mathematician. Uh, they were living off of his one salary and whatever jobs my grandmother could scrape together. But she was like a rich upper caste housewife in India. So, mm-hmm. you know, and she had, you know, her own degree and she did her own stuff. Like she was a principal, but coming here, she had to do all kinds of different work, including like babysitting and cleaning up in homes and things like that. So they had a really hard life growing up as kids on my mom's side and my dad he migrated here in the 80s so post the second wave basically Mm -hmm. like the first wave was 1965 with the immigration act right second wave is like closer to the 90s uh 80s and 90s and my dad was part of that wave maybe a little earlier actually and uh, he managed to scam some kind of like (laughs) he describes it as like a government sponsorship program not sponsorship but like scholarship so like the government was helping kids from certain backgrounds to get a doctoral program type thing like a postdoc okay um type thing or maybe it was his phd something like that that was how he got here there's like the details are pretty hazy but he he holds on to the fact that he scammed somebody (laughs) into getting here (laughs) and (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so some of him feels like he doesn't deserve it but also I feel like that's where I get my scammer side from like <laughs> I really truly do not believe that rules apply to me <laughs> and it comes directly from my dad <laughs> that rogueness some of it <laughs> you gotta have it you know a little you bit gotta somewhere. have it yeah. you gotta have it so my dad's lower caste he is from a caste they're called Shimpi. And they are the Taylor cast. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're considered OBC, other backwards cast. Um, so uh, considered Bahujan. So like just the large umbrella term for lower caste peoples. Mm-hmm. And my mom is from an upper caste that is below Brahmin, but it's upper caste. Mm-hmm. And what's so different is like, so my understanding of caste has also only come to consciousness in the last like three, four years. Mm-hmm. And that is directly because of my work as a grassroots organizer. So because grad school, you know, radicalized me to find these communities, I was meeting really interesting people doing really interesting South Asian organizing. And so one of those places was East Coast Solidarity Summer. And I got exposed to them in like 2014 and I met Sharman Hussein, who is also my best friend still right now. <laughs> and the kind of organizing that she was doing was radically educating South Asian youth about politics, about like anti-capitalism, about anti-blackness, about casteism. And that was really how I came to better understand why my mom's family is so different from my dad's family. Mm-hmm. Um, on my dad's family, you know, my dad was one of 10 kids and my dad's mom was like the third wife and the other two like mysteriously died. It's just like very strange yeah. and there's not a whole lot of information. And, um, like one of my dad's sisters killed herself and there's also like not a lot of details, like lit herself on fire the details are just so hazy like why who did that who encouraged this who let this happen and a lot of the women are were not allowed to go on to secondary education so like even high school or middle school let alone college and uh, a lot of my dad's family also still is in india and they didn't actually migrate here until um maybe early 2000s some did because they won the the visa lottery and just waited for years um, until they got their their chance. And that was like post 9-11 U.S. So it was also really difficult for them um, for a number of reasons. And so not all of them stayed. They were like, life in America is too hard. Fuck this. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And my mom's family has a really different um, experience because um, my mom is from a much smaller family. She's one of four kids. And she has three sisters and they all live kind of close by and one brother. 
Uh, my mama lives far. He's in Alaska right now because he was in the military in order to go to med school. So he moved around a lot when we were younger. But all my cousins who I grew up with were all about the same age and were super close. And we all kind of lived near each other. And the values on my mom's side are really different. Like everyone eats meat. They're like super duper, like heavy into meat eating. Mm -hmm. In a way that's not, I mean, that in itself is not like revolutionary. So like, I'm going to get to the the cliffhanger or the the catch, the punchline. <laughs> and um, like really big into meat eating. And they're like, oh yeah, you know, this, I'm a, I am a, an interesting Hindu person because I eat meat. But if you were to ask anybody if they'll cook beef in their house, they'll be like, oh no, I don't really do that. And the answer is sometimes like just lacking in explanation or logic. Right. It's like, oh, um, that's different. Or, or I don't eat pork either. I don't cook that in the house either. So it's not you know specific to beef. So I totally related to Sonali's points about the contradictions around eating meat. I'm Gujarati. Gujarat is a state in India, but Hindus can be of any caste in any state. And most Gujaratis I knew growing up were vegetarian. This is linked to Vaishnavism, which is essentially the Gujarati version of Vaishyas, the caste. And in the Vaishnav tradition, they practice ahimsa, which is not causing any harm, including what we choose to eat. Yet, I know plenty of people from North India who were Hindu that ate chicken, and South Indian Hindus that ate fish. So I never quite understood if this was religious or regional. What I remember learning in religious school was that Hindus considered the cow sacred, and that God Krishna loved cows, so therefore we must respect them. So in my understanding, this is why Hindus didn't eat beef. But the other day, I was watching the ugly delicious episode, Don't Call It Curry, and they talk about how cow dung was used for cooking fuel, so that's why it was also revered. So the reason the cow is worshipped seems very multidimensional, but a little confusing. Now, a few years ago, I was doing a project about Dalits for graduate school, and I read an article that talks about B.R. Ambedkar, the father of the Indian Constitution. He was also a Dalit. In 1948, he wrote a book titled The Untouchables, Who Were They and Why They Became Untouchables. He talks about how Brahmins, the highest Hindu caste, in fact, it did eat cows and stopped eating it as a strategy to drive out Buddhism in India. At the same time, Ambedkar discusses that one of the biggest differences between Dalits and other castes was that Dalits were the only ones that ate beef. Even if non-Dalits ate any flesh, they never touched cow. Yet, he also talks about how in the Rigved, one of the Hindu scriptures, that Hindus did kill cows as well as other animals, and they also ate them. Ambedkar posits that in the historical struggle between Buddhists and Brahmins, something that isn't mentioned much in the history books, there was a time where Buddhism started spreading across India, putting Brahmins on the defensive. Buddhists were against sacrificing animals, so to have a better position, Brahmins gave up cow sacrifice. Because of this, they were able to regain their religious power. They even did more so by becoming full vegetarian. I'm going to link this story in the show notes. Either way, there's a lot of confusion about meat eating and the holiness behind it. and We cannot take it at face value. And what we see when we like lift up the veil of casteism is that we see a lot of this like cultural casteism. And, and this is how I learn about casteism in picking up these like small cultural traditions and the way that we maintain hierarchy and purity around our casteness, our casted selves. Uh, around what we eat. And you know me, the fat sex therapist loves to fucking talk about food and like body mm -hmm. politics in this way. Sure. Because caste is all about, and, and like casteism and the caste hierarchy is all about like, how do we attain purity in our bodies by doing certain things? And everyone in this caste hierarchy will look to the people who are already at the top of the hierarchy, which are the Brahmins, on how to live their, their purest lives. Mm -hmm. And a lot of Brahmins are vegetarians. A lot of Brahmins are very religious in very specific ways. And in order to maintain purity, um, there's lots of things that people do. Like in addition to like abstaining from beef products, because cows are considered holy, abstaining from meat in general, abstaining from sex. And a lot of it is like just textbook misogyny, like mm. shaving people for having periods, telling women that they're sinners just for existing. 
a lot of that stuff is baked into Hinduism. And I think that without really reading scripture, because a lot of us don't, I mean, I didn't, I didn't grow up reading scripture, but if we did look at scripture, we would see the casteism baked right into the text. And that's like Vedas, that's like the Manusmritis, that's like anything that you'll learn about in a casteism workshop is often directly from the text. They're pulling out the same way that people will pull out text from a Bible. Mm-hmm. And that'll describe things uh, like calling women sinners just for existing. They'll say there are men and then there are sinners. So if you're not a man, you're literally a sinner. Wow. Things in the text <laughs> will say, I know, right? Like just text like a, misogyny. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I remember like, you know, if I have my period, I'm not supposed to go to the temple. Like I, mm-hmm. you know, that's just something I just know, you know, like that. That's no, casteism. Yeah. Yeah. Definitely. That's misogyny. Yeah. <laughs> that's brahminical patriarchy. Yeah. That is this idea that anyone who's not a man is inherently uh, less than. In the Manusmritis, there is a line that talks about these words are so holy, these words are so pure, that if a Dalit were to even hear these words, that molten metal should be poured into their eardrums just for hearing the holy words. Because what Brahminical patriarchy, uh, what Hinduism believes is that there are people who are inherently impure. There are people who are inherently polluted just because of where they fall in the caste hierarchy. Mm -hmm. And that's where we get into the idea of karma. I don't think that we should continue discussing karma as if it's this like neutral idea. It is inherently casteist. Mm -hmm. Karma is often an ideology that is used to perpetuate the idea that lower caste people deserve to experience the punishment that they receive because they must have did something in a previous life. Mm-hmm. that caused them to be born lower caste. So yeah. karma is inherently casteist, the whole idea of it. Yeah. I remember, you know, in, in the Hindu classes I took when I was younger too, I feel like there were a lot of things when I was like in my teens that I felt were good that I learned from the scriptures, but I never really was able to tease out the caste part. But I always remember feeling like the system itself and the idea of karma and like being born into a different caste because you deserve it. And also inherently then being treated a certain way just never sat well with me. Like I just, I'm like, this just doesn't make sense. I all the science part of me was like, but it just doesn't make sense logically to me. That's one of the things that I really, I'm so glad that we hold on to that, but cause that's our, like our intuition mm-hmm. and that's our embodied knowledge. It's a completely different way of like creating knowledge and knowing because your body internally is like, no, something doesn't feel right about that. Something doesn't feel true. And someone is trying to convince me of this lie, but somewhere mm-hmm. in my body, I know it to be untrue. Yes. And that's exactly what I was taught too. You know, I also went to Hindu Sunday school and it was called Balvihar and it was run by the VHP and the Vishwa Hindu Parisha, the VHP is a subsidiary of the RSS. And that is, yeah, that's like Hindu SS, like Hindu Nazis. So who was the RSS? The Unmasking Modi story I'm linking in the show notes goes into more detail, but I'll speak about it here briefly. RSS stands for Rashtriya Swayamsevak Sangh, and it was founded in 1925. It is a right-wing Hindu nationalist group. In fact, the Hindu that murdered Gandhi was in the RSS. He leapt over ideological differences shortly before. And India's current Prime Minister, Narendra Modi, was also an RSS member. This organization essentially promotes the idea of Hindutva. And those are the people who are teaching us, you know, what is Hinduism? What are our holidays? What are the myths behind these holidays? And that is the interrogation that we need to be doing within these, like, cultural sites. Is like, should these individuals, I mean, obviously the answer is no, but... Should we be continuing to send children to these places um, when we think that they're delivering us like politically neutral content when it's absolutely not? Yeah, definitely. I think um, with the rise of Modi in India, I myself just started really distancing myself from religion and feeling very disillusioned, but also sad because it it still had cultural family ties for me, you know? Mm -hmm. So I felt like it was difficult, but I also like stopped caring because it just made me so angry about how 
this is the other contradiction with karma. Karma is about doing good deeds and whatnot, but then you're treating people like shit. Like, yeah. I don't understand. <laughs> like, that doesn't like, just do the good deed. You don't yeah. need to do it because you're not going to become Dalit fucking yeah. asshole. I know. Exactly. <laughs> like, I'm just going to do it to be like a good freaking person, you know? So, exactly. Um, yeah. Like, yeah, that stuff never made sense. So like kind of, you know, in a way I felt like I've divorced myself from it. And I think one of the biggest challenges for me, and um, I know you've talked about this too, is talking to our Hindu parents about this when they are so mm-hmm. brainwashed or dead set or just super yeah. Hindutva about it. You know, I feel like one of the, the word. Yeah, yes. One of the biggest contradictions is like I will see like Hindu family members of mine condemning Trump but praising Modi. And I'm just like, what kind of cognitive dissonance is this? You know? <laughs> It's hilarious to watch because you know in their brains. Remember that movie Inside Out? Yes. And there's like all these emotions on someone's control panels, like yes. behind their eyes. Uh-huh. I, I bet internally, you know, all those emotions are like, this doesn't make sense, guys. Yeah. <laughs> yes. All the people running the control panels also agree that it does not make sense because Trump and Modi are besties. Yeah. So, how in the world could one not? support the same argument that's happening in a different nation state. So I'm so glad you bring up this question though, because I feel like the place that my family is in right now. And again, you stated the date, right? This is like the late March, 2020. Mm -hmm. My family has been having really different conversations around Hindutva because I did not go to my family's big Diwali party last year. Mm -hmm. And it was like, it caused a ruckus. Let me tell you. So like the volley was maybe like what October, November ish. Mm-hmm. And my decision to go was like kind of last minute. I had been mulling over it for weeks. I didn't tell my parents whether or not I was going. And my mom and I have already been kind of like our relationships kind of strained. And my mom and I, our relationship hasn't always been like that. Like I was the queer kid who was like, really close to my mom, telling her about all my sex capades, mm-hmm. telling her about what I was studying and shit on the internet and just telling her about some of my friends. And we would talk a lot because I lived at home for a long, long time. And so she was like my roommate. Mm-hmm. And I lived with my, both my parents in New Jersey and up until a couple of years ago. So this is like recent. And then only with me moving out did I realize how little we actually had in common and how little she actually was like loving all of me and how I was like fragmenting myself in order Mm -hmm. to like make her happy and to like live in the house peacefully. Yeah. So preserve yourself, right? Exactly. Exactly. Out of safety, right? Safety, Mm -hmm. but not in the physical sense, like, you know, emotionally, emotionally safe for all of us. And I think a lot of immigrant children, we do that. We like sacrifice our own emotional needs in order to maintain family harmony. and that actually does us a great disservice because it doesn't shift the caregiving dynamic from parent to child and it reverses it. And it feels like it's going from child to parent. Mm-hmm. And what's so bad about that for us as immigrant kids is that it trains us to not consider our own emotional needs as important or relevant or um, in need of like tending to. And so we often will find ourselves in romantic relationships where we are, you know, meeting a very similar dynamic where we are partnering ourselves with people who cannot meet our emotional needs because they can't even empathize with us in the ways that we need empathy. So moving out from my parents' house was like a deeply, you know, spiritual, queer mm-hmm. <laughs> project of independence. And it really helped me to see that my parents are really different from me and that I have emotionally individuated finally by separating myself from the family home because in not attending that Diwali celebration, because my parents, like I mentioned, live in this McMansion in South Jersey. Mm-hmm. And for those who don't, you know, who are not also Jersey Indians, being a diasporic Hindu is a really specific experience when you're also from Jersey, because we grew up among many other diaspora families. Mm-hmm. And so there are things that I know about Gujaratis because I'm not Gujarati, but Mm -hmm. I know a lot about Gujaratis because I grew up in Jersey. Jersey, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. So I know a lot about like, I know a lot of Gujarati words. I know a lot of Gujarati customs. I know Mm -hmm. a lot of Gujarati foods, even though 
know my family is Gujarati. Mm-hmm. Right. <laughs> and so in my family, throwing this big Diwali party in their McMansion is like, it's a class status symbol yeah. because they invite a hundred plus families to come to that giant home. Wow. And it is, you know, clean top to bottom, you know, every light is on from closet to dishwasher. And they've got these little Mitai boxes for every family who comes. And, mm-hmm. you know, there's a Hindu priest and he comes from the local temple and he does a puja and everyone is sitting in the family room in front of this like big ornate fireplace with different deities set up there. And there's like Om J Jagadish going in the background and it's this picturesque idea of what a happy, rich Hindu family looks like that's well-adjusted, that is together, that looks happy. And, you know, me not going to that function was not just for political reasons, because Diwali is an inherently casteist celebration. And my mom, for that Diwali, had said on the invitation, you know, please, no gifts, but please donate to this organization called Health aid for rural India or something like that. Mm-hmm. And so she asked for donations to that organization. And when I researched it, they are also operate under the RSS. Wow. And so it's not just for those political reasons that I did not want to attend. It was also because I did not feel happy as part of this happy family. Yeah. I did not feel like I could perform the role asked of me in order to attend the celebration. Yeah. I, Completely. I think you just said it right there at the end. So specifically mm-hmm. in tying it back to what you were saying in the beginning, because if you did play that role, you would be feeding back into being the caretaker of your family, right? Yep. Feeding into this role that, okay, I am a good Hindu daughter and I will yep. support mm-hmm. this, even though I deeply feel that it is bullshit. And mm-hmm. I will sit here and listen to these prayers and whatever, you know. So I totally hear you. I more and more feel uncomfortable around hearing like stories and whatnot and seeing how deeply casteism is embedded within our myths. Mm-hmm. I'm actually currently writing an essay about that topic exactly, relating it to actually being physically dark and being a heavier person that takes up space and what that means and how that has affected through a joke, my relationship with my mom and I. So yeah, like that stuff is policed directly from the scriptures. <laughs> mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. Like when I think about casteism and beauty politics and that intersection, you know, that that's also written directly into the scripture where when maligning it is in a myth and it is in the demonization of Supernica, and you have to forgive me, I do not remember what myth this was part of, but I know that Supernica is not an upper caste woman and that she Mm -hmm. was a lower caste woman in the story. And in demonizing her because they were positioning her as opposition to someone else who was an upper caste woman who was beautiful, when describing Supernica, they were describing her as pot-bellied, dark, curly Mm -hmm. hair. And I felt like that's such an interesting set of words to describe someone as ugly, right? Because when we do that, we position the opposites as beautiful. And the purpose of any binary like this is in order to create a hierarchy. And that's what I teach a lot of in my workshops, um, in my body image workshops, is to better understand why we use binaries, why they even exist, And what are all the things that are included in the good-bad binary? Um, Because food also gets put in there too. Because when we moralize anything, Mm -hmm. we're choosing whether or not one deserves to exist. And when the bad half of the binary gets put on the bad side, when, you know, fatness gets put there, when darkness gets put there, when curly-hairedness, when fattening food gets put there, all of those things, if anyone looks like those things or partakes in those things, they also lose their right to humanity. It also is used as a way to remove someone's right to exist as is. Yeah, to exist and take up any type of space too. Mm -hmm. Definitely. I'm glad that we shifted the conversation to beauty standards because I know a lot of the work you do has to do with your work around fat activism and while you're also a sex therapist. So can you talk about the relationship between the two? Because I could see someone being like, oh, well, sex therapy, that's different than fat activism or body positivity or whatever. So can you talk about their relationship? 
Yeah, totally. So sex therapy is typically considered the type of therapy that one would need if they were struggling with primarily a sexual dysfunction. Mm-hmm. And so there's a very specific set of types of sexual dysfunctions that are thought of as requiring sex therapy, like vaginal dryness, pain during penetrative sex, erectile dysfunction, premature ejaculation, loss of libido due to cancer treatment or illness, disease, infidelity, cheating, or even mismatches in libido. So one person has a higher libido, one person has lower, Mm -hmm. and the conflict that comes from that. So those are typically like the very white understanding of what sex therapy is. And me, as someone who is queer, as someone who is brown, as someone who is fat, I see it as a much broader spectrum of sexual dysfunction. I think that when I am, and I'll use myself as an example. So when me, myself, when I am struggling with eroticizing my body, or feeling like a sexual object in a way that feels good to me, if I'm having trouble imagining that or doing that for myself, I think that's a sexual dysfunction. Mm. I think that when I internalize fat phobia and when I have a hard time imagining myself as a sexual being who is desirable and worthy of love, I think that's a sexual dysfunction. I think that when anti-Blackness convinces Black folks that they are worthy of terrible treatment in their romantic relationships, I think that is a sexual dysfunction. And I'm really specifically shifting the word dysfunction and I'm not rooting it within the body. Mm -hmm. So when I'm thinking of a sexual dysfunction in those senses, I'm rooting the dysfunction in the system, right? The system is capitalism. The system is anti-blackness. The system is fat phobia. And those are the things that contain the dysfunction. And this is a really intentional shift that comes from disability justice. It shifts the medical model of disability from looking at, you know, a person as having a disability to, oh, no, actually we see a social model of disability. Mm -hmm. Actually, I see the society as having disabled you because they're not allowing you as an individual to have free access. It's like the society is you know, creating structures that intentionally do not allow you to access it, like creating a building without a ramp, for example. Mm -hmm. So all these ideas to me converge to this really interesting place because what I'm infusing is my own experiences. My pursuit to even think that therapy would be interesting is to better understand what it is that I have survived. And that's also, you know, one of the deeper projects of grad school, especially social work school, is delving through our own shit. So in social work school, I've had to write like countless papers about my own family dynamic and my own reason why my relationship with my brother is so conflicted and my own relationship to my body and my own issues with my white classmates in all types of papers Mm -hmm. in order to process and better understand why I relate to others and myself in this way. I asked Sonali more about how the status quo of our bodies relates to whiteness. Yeah, it applies this like really white understanding of the body where if we just understand what the white body is struggling with, we can, you know, generalize those feelings and universalize that experience. But you know, for folks who are not white, that is not helpful. So we have to actually look at ourselves and the people who we work with. So I am like a queer non-binary clinician and therapist working in Philadelphia who primarily works with trans and queer folks of color Mm -hmm. in my practice. And so when I'm working with the population who is also me, reflected in me, I'm talking about a completely different understanding of how we interact with systems. That's really different from the white way I was taught to understand all people in grad school. Mm -hmm. And it's been really liberating actually to have a business partner. I met Kala Dasepti, my business partner. We co-own Radical Therapy Center in Philadelphia. It has been so affirming to meet someone like her who is willing to grapple and like just trouble 
these conversations with clients in sessions. So you better believe that we're talking about socialism with my clients. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm trying to instill hope with my clients, we're talking about revolution. We're talking about like the next big change. We're talking about, you know, if we really do things right, we will never go back to how the way things were. And that is hopeful for a lot of us that we've been waiting for this moment in order to shift a lot of the systems in order to see those cracks as opportunities. And it's a completely revolutionary way of doing therapy. And I feel so grateful in order to be able to do it. Yeah, that's so amazing. I feel like instead of going to therapy and being embedded within this very white hetero model, it takes us out of our own self-hate and imagines a new world where that, like you said, we will never go back to that way of thinking again. Sonali does all of this amazing work as a social worker, yet she had a lot of hardships being around so many white classmates that she couldn't relate to in her program. Here, Sonali talks about what someone on the margins, especially a person of color, should consider before entering a social work master's program. It's got to require someone who has some amount of thick skin already. Mm -hmm. So anytime a person of color asks me if they should also pursue a master's degree, I have to ask them, you know, what type of work is it that you want to be doing afterward? Because if someone wants to work in a grassroots model, if they want to institute change in ways that operate outside the system, like operate outside of the nonprofit, operate outside of insurance companies, then they might not even need a master's degree. For me, I am someone who didn't have to take on any debt. So my parents paid for my master's degrees. And because of that, it has allowed me to be able to spend a lot of extra time developing an Instagram platform, putting my work out through podcasts, through webinars. Mm -hmm. It has allowed me to create projects by offering virtual support groups Mm -hmm. because I was also, you know, freelance educating on the side. I was also seeing clients on the side. I have like, you know, three part-time jobs at all times. I think that if someone is going to think about a social work degree, they have to consider what their earning potential is post-graduation and whether that's worth it for them because of the amount of debt they'll have to take on. So for me, my program was a three-year program. I'm going to say the name of it, not because I'm advertising it, not because I'm paid to, not because I recommend it, uh, simply so that folks know if, in case they're looking for an idea, but I went to Widener University, which is in Chester, Pennsylvania. It was a three-year program to get a double master's, a master's in clinical social work Mm. and a master's in clinical sex education. I went down this path feeling really hopeful and optimistic and it broke me in really painful ways. And I probably could not go back to academia because of what I experienced. And for me, that's fine. For those who want to embark on a graduate degree, especially if they're folks of color who are queer, it is going to be immensely hard. And not just because of the curriculum, but because of your classmates who think that they're meaning well and are not. And you're going to feel betrayed again and again. And it's going to be painful and hard. You're going to feel lonely and isolated. And if you're not in therapy and if you don't already have a thick skin and if you don't have community who think like you and look like you, it's going to be harder to survive. But if that's the path that you want, if you want to be a sex therapist who is able to book expensive gigs, like when a university calls me up because they want me to fly out and do a keynote somewhere, you know, I'm asking for like multiple thousands of dollars to go and do that. And that's because I have master's degrees. That's because people assume that I have attended some kind of education that gives me institutional power and prestige. And, you know, a lot of these ideas that I have right now, fuck Widener, they did not give me any of these ideas. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Right. No, for sure. But if if that's your plan, so I'm speaking directly to you. If that's your plan, if you're going to use it as something that's going to boost you up and you're going to take advantage of it, that's what you need it for. But like, fuck the degree. If you think that it's going to like teach you anything that's like, I don't know, revolutionary in itself. It's not. Sure. No, that's really helpful to know. And it's very um, eye-opening in terms of kind of where academia is. You know, sure, it might be different for different fields, but I do think that generally that there is that type of lens when, when it comes to academia, no doubt. Wow. We, I feel like we talked about so many 
interesting <laughs> subjects. And the funny thing is that they were all so interrelated, even though they seem so disparate. So I really, really yeah. appreciate the way you weaved these things together. Um, even when it, it came to cantaloupes, I mean, you know, <laughs> I'm going to bring it back to that. <laughs> hey, I feel like there is no such thing as a guilty pleasure. I think that all that shit, it comes from misogyny. It comes from, you know, I read this zine that my girlfriend showed me about guilty pleasures and, you know, I'll have to look it up so that you can link it to the original author. But basically the author of this zine was talking about how men don't talk about guilty pleasures. You know, they'll sit, especially cis men, like they'll sit and watch football for like 10 hours all day and like, <laughs> you know, get up to drink a beer and go to the bathroom. And like, they're like, what? productivity fuck that i don't feel guilty for not being productive today right. <laughs> so you know fuck a guilty pleasure they're just pleasure we're we as non-men we're allowed to fucking feel pleasure anytime we fucking want and we don't have to earn it and uh, fuck capitalism and yeah let's fucking eat some goddamn cantaloupe <laughs> yeah and make some wine out of it <laughs> fuck yes <laughs> all right well let's just end on that note thank you so much sonali <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. This was actually a wonderful one hour um, where I forgot that there was a global pandemic. That's I know. Great. All right. Well, let's just get back to that now. Oh, God. All right. Thank you so much. Thank you. Sonali and I covered so much in this episode. Learning about their migration story, their identity, and how it affects the work they do is exactly why this podcast exists. I want to give a shout out to my $20 a month and above patrons. Thank you so much to my brother Shaline and Dahlia Gahan for your generous support. Thank you to all my Patreon patrons. The cover art for Migrations was painted by Tiffany Wong. The music is by Shin Kawasaki. And of course, thank you Quincy Sarasmith for your amazing editing. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <laughs>